2: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast, a heaping helping of our favorite stories from across our coverage. I'm Lane Green, The Economist's language columnist, and on your menu this week, the life and legacy of Stephen Hawking, how Jesus really can save El Salvador's gangs, and the spaghetti smugglers of the Sahara. But let's start with our cover story. The battle for digital supremacy graces our cover this week. President Donald Trump has blocked the takeover of Qualcomm, an American chipmaker, by Broadcom, a Singaporean rival. His reason was that Chinese leadership in 5G wireless could threaten national security. We argued that although Mr. Trump has identified a real challenge, his wild-firing response is
3: going to hit the wrong target. Designed by Apple in California, assembled in China. Over the past decade, the words embossed on the back of iPhones have served as shorthand for the technological bargain between the world's two biggest economies. America supplies the brains and China the brawn. Those days are gone. China's world-class tech giants Alibaba and Tencent have market values of around $500 billion, rivaling Facebook's. China has the largest online payments market. Its equipment is being exported across the world. It has the fastest supercomputer. It is building the world's most lavish quantum computing research center. Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Alphabet, Google's parent, has warned that China will overtake America in artificial intelligence, or AI, by 2025. But although the rise of
2: Chinese tech might be intimidating, the trigger-happy Mr. Trump should be careful not to shoot
3: himself in the foot. It is entirely natural for a continent-sized, rapidly growing economy with a culture of scientific inquiry to enjoy a technological renaissance. Already, China has one of the biggest clusters of AI scientists. It has over 800 million internet users, more than any other country, which means more data on which to hone its new AI. The technological advances this brings will benefit countless people, Americans among them. Mr. Trump is right that there's a risk if one
2: country dominates advances in information technologies.
3: They are often subject to extreme network effects in which one winner establishes an unassailable position in each market. This means that a country may be squeezed out of vital technologies by foreign rivals pumped up by state support. In the case of China, those rivals answer to an oppressive authoritarian regime that increasingly holds itself up as an alternative to liberal democracy, particularly in its part of Asia.
2: But Mr. Trump should instead be focusing on boosting America's
3: digital firepower. His record on that score is abysmal. America's federal government spending on R&D was 0.6% of GDP in 2015, a third of what it was in 1964. Yet the President's budget proposal for 2019 includes a 42.3% cut in non-defense discretionary spending by 2028, which is where funding for scientific research sits. America is right to worry about Chinese tech. But for America to turn its back on the things that made it great is no answer. And you
2: can read our recommendations for a targeted, strategic response in this week's Economist. It's available online at Economist.com and on actual paper at your local newsagents, too. You can also subscribe. Go to subscriptions.economist.com for an introductory offer. Mr. Trump might feel a little heartened to hear that even the highest of Chinese tech can break down. Tiangong-1 is an eight-ton Chinese space station, and it will soon be coming back to Earth with a bump. An article in our science and
1: technology section has the details. Tiangong-1's mission officially ended in March 2016. A few months later, China's space agency appeared to confirm what amateur skywatchers had already suspected, that it had lost control of the station. It was due back by now, but predicting the re-entry of uncontrolled space debris is no easy feat. At low altitudes, anything under about 2,000 kilometres, orbital mechanics is a surprisingly imprecise science. Earth's thin outer atmosphere exerts a measurable drag on anything in such an orbit, and this drag means that, without regular boosts, that object will fall out of orbit eventually. The drag itself, however, is not constant. But the space boffins have had a good go at making an educated guess as to where and when the rogue station will land. The Aerospace Corporation, an American consultancy, reckons that April 3rd is the most likely day. The European Space Agency expects it to happen sometime between March 29th and April 9th. The characteristics of the station's orbit mean it will be between latitudes 43 degrees north, that of northern Spain, and 43 degrees south, which passes by Tasmania. That's still quite a margin, but our correspondent reckons you shouldn't be too worried. For one thing, the world is mostly ocean. For another, even on land, people are small and scarce compared with the available area. Nor indeed is anyone known to have been injured by re-entering debris since the space age began, though someone has been hit but not hurt. The risk of such injury cannot, however, be ruled out, and the chance of damage to property, which occupies a larger fraction of Earth's surface than people do, is proportionately higher. If you're looking skywards in some anxiety now, take a deep breath, and now look again,
2: this time in wonder. In this great universe, we are very small. Life is short and precious, and there is so much left to learn. The cosmologist Stephen Hawking died last week at the age of 76. On our science podcast, Babbage, Hal Hodson asked former colleagues and friends about his life and legacy.
4: The non-specialist I will remember him as a person who was able to overcome really severe physical limitations to achieve tremendous intellectual heights. He's become a symbol of physics, but beyond that, a symbol of science, and beyond that, a symbol of what humanity can achieve and of the the best things that we have as humans, the ability to uh, use our brains to comprehend our universe.
2: Professor Carlos Frank there, director of the Institute for Computational Cosmology at Durham University. You can also read our full obituary of Stephen Hawking in this week's edition of The Economist. Two weeks ago, Sergei Skripal, a Russian ex-spy, as well as his daughter and a policeman, were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent in the usually quiet British town of Salisbury. The British Prime Minister, Theresa May, has described it in unflinching terms as an unlawful use of force by the Russian state against the United Kingdom. 23 employees of the Russian embassy have been expelled. Sir Francis Richards is the former head of GCHQ, the British version of the National Security Agency. We asked him, is Russia waging a new war against the West? I think that the term war is misleading. I think it's
3: almost an obsolete word in that War tends to imply you have peace and then someone presents a bit of paper and then you're the other side of a line.
1: We're over that line all
3: of the time.
1: We're not into all-out war, but we are in a perpetual conflict, the rules of which are not at all clear. War on the whole has been conducted according to at least some rules most of the time. This one really doesn't have any. At least it has rules that bind us, but none that bind
2: the aggressors. And you can listen to the rest of that discussion by subscribing to The Economist Asks on Apple Podcast, or whichever podcast platform has your personal loyalty. In the week ahead, our current affairs podcast, foreign correspondent Sarah Maslin told us about a place where murder is sadly much more common than in Salisbury, El Salvador. It's a common saying that the only way out of a gang is in a body bag. But Sarah has discovered that there can be another way out. By joining a church,
0: Saul so far has stayed
3: steadfast in his determination to stick with the church and stay away from the gang. And um, you know, their only hope is that uh, by showing that providing an alternative does lead to people in the gangs being able to reform, that the rest of society will start to change their mind.
0: The
2: Week Ahead is published every Friday. You can also read about this in more depth in the latest issue of 1843, The Economist's Magazine of Ideas, Lifestyle, and Culture. And if you prefer listening to us, let us know by rating us on your app. It makes all the difference. We turn back to the newspaper now where illicit activity also abounds this week. A piece in our Middle East and Africa section investigated an unexpected form of contraband.
4: The shifting sands of the Sahara have long been crossed by trade and smuggling routes. Traffickers send people and drugs north over the desert. But they have a problem. What to put in the empty trucks going back? The answer? Pasta. Sure, it's not
2: as lucrative as drugs or guns, but the market is hungry.
4: In Libya, which still subsidises food prices, even if somewhat erratically because of the civil war, 500 grams of pasta can be bought for 15 to 25 American cents. The same bag of pasta might cost 250 CFA francs, that's 50 American cents, in Timbuktu, and about 800 CFA francs, that's $1.50, in Senegal, or some of the posher parts of Bamako, the capital of Mali.
2: It's difficult to know for sure without surveying the smugglers themselves.
4: But a study in 2015 by the Economic Research Forum, a think tank based in Egypt, found that pasta was the main product going across the Sahara from Algeria to Mali, accounting for about a third of the trade.
2: If you're going that way, you may even spot the telltale signs that the pasta pirates have passed this way.
4: Many poke sticks of spaghetti into the sand as waymarks.
2: And finally, in my role as Johnson, The Economist's language columnist, I'm always keeping an ear open for clever uses of language in film. I had high hopes for this year's crop, but a recent cinema trip left me disappointed.
0: Hollywood's attention to the detail of foreign settings, from clothing to sets, has advanced beyond the old lazy stereotypes of years past. But in things linguistic, the situation is patchy. Red Sparrow hardly improves on The Hunt for Red October, released in 1990. Its Russian characters display their Russianness by speaking accented English to each other. Ms. Lawrence hardly bothers with anything much beyond a general Eastern European, and just one line of real dialogue is in Russian.
2: Some filmmakers do see foreign languages as an opportunity, not just as a challenge, with varying levels of success. Take Black Panther.
0: For most of the movie, African-American actors speak English with a kind of Pan-African accent, which does not in fact exist. But the filmmakers also took the unusual step of making a real language, Koza, which was Nelson Mandela's mother tongue, stand in for the fictional Wakandan. The use of Koza did at least give a suitably foreign flair to the setting. Sadly, it did little more than that. Its scattered use and the random switches to English did nothing to advance the plot or flesh out the characters. A
2: gold star for ambition goes to Arrival, in which a linguist is sent to communicate with aliens who have landed on Earth.
0: She deciphers their visual language in scenes that rely on the expertise of actual working linguists, many of whom were pleased to see some of their ideas make it to the big screen.
2: But it would be nice to see the creative use of some earthly languages in Hollywood too.
0: Many non-American films integrate language switching much more naturally, as the process is a routine part of many people's daily lives. It seems that Hollywood has simply not developed the confidence that its viewers are willing to tolerate such disjunctures. Hollywood is leading more films with non-white actors and women. Why not put the world's languages in the spotlight, too?
2: That's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. But we want to hear from you, too. Does your favorite film make a virtue of multilingualism? Write to us at radio at economist.com or via Twitter at Economist Radio. And remember, you can get more of all the stories we sampled here online at economist.com. I'm Lane Green, and in London, this is The Economist. I'll leave you with a song. David Mares of Melbourne,
3: Australia, wrote in to remind me that some rules are made to be broken. Johnson suggests that it is not possible to say to one's beau, I love she and she loves I, article March 3rd. Fortunately, Tom Lehrer did not consider this a restriction when he penned his reimagining of the folk song Clementine. His last stanza culminated in, But I love she and she loves me...
1: But I love she and she loves me And raptured are the both of we Yes, I love she and she loves I and we will through all eternity
4: See what I mean?
3: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.